Hello, Mama. This is episode six of Reaching Abundance. And today I'm sharing with you seven pieces of common financial advice or ideals that I disagree with. These are statements I've seen or assumptions I've heard and even things I've actually been told to do that I flat out think are wrong. They're simply bad advice and don't take into account the whole picture. So, I'll be spending our time today sharing with you what these seven things are that I disagree with, why, and what I think we should do instead. I think it's important to really just take a step back and evaluate things that everyone does that may or may not benefit them, and they just do them because it's common advice. And this act of attempting to think for ourselves and sometimes go against the grain is important for our own success, which is why I'm super excited to spend this time together today. Abundance is possible, Mama, for all of us, no matter where we are or in which stage of life. Welcome to the Reaching Abundance podcast, where your host, Virginia Elder, shares helpful guidance for moms around positive mindset, creating simplicity, practicing true self-care, and most of all, money management. Her financial journey toward a better life blossomed into an insatiable desire for overall happiness and abundance. Hang out with her right here each week while she ditches the taboos around women and money, shares resources, educates, and financially empowers all Thank you for being here with me today. I'm Virginia, and I'm so ready to share seven financial ideals I disagree with. We've all been given bad financial advice at some point in our lives. Do you remember some you've been given? As you listen today, screenshot this episode, share it in your stories, and tag me at Happy Healthy Abundance. I'll reshare your story. Plus, It's an easy way for you to share this podcast with your friends. I'm doing my best to reach mamas all over the world so that together we can bust this whole money taboo and have a safe place where we can chat about motherhood and money without judgment or side eye. A rising tide raises all ships, so when you share this, you're elevating their lives as well as yours. So, bad advice could just be a Comment from a friend who's passing on something they were told. It could also be that dreaded hour-long conversation you get sucked into each year at Thanksgiving by a well-meaning relative. But bad advice can also be inherent or societal, something that's commonly heard that your father believed, that you were told at some point, either by someone directly or through a barrage of media that we're exposed to every day. What's the effect of bad advice in your life, though? Was it null and void because as soon as you could escape that investment convo at grandma's house, you roll your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and proceed to find the pumpkin pie? Or maybe the advice was something you didn't even know was bad advice, like that from your father. Maybe he was simply passing on the knowledge he had accumulated, trying to teach you how it's done, because it worked for him. However, The 20-year-old version of you didn't know it was bad advice per se. You just thought that's how the world worked. After operating on that advice for a few years, you noticed terrible effects. Tons of debt, zero in your checking almost immediately after every paycheck, and overall uneasiness about how much you can or can't spend. Maybe you still haven't noticed the true effects of the bad advice. Maybe you're still just operating, doing the best you can, although definitely not thriving, but you think this is just how it is. You think everyone's struggling. Money is hard. Adulting is difficult. Years later, you're just earning a check and paying bills and attempting to make sure you can afford a few fun things here and there, even though you aren't actually happy with your finances. Actually, you barely look at them because when you do, you barely know what you're looking at. And quite frankly, it seems like a mess but you don't even know the first step in cleaning it up. The thing is, anything else that we practice for five to 10 years, we become experts at. Think about it. 
your career, sports, oils, nutrition, fitness, cooking, anything. You go to school and get a degree in something, and by the time you're a few years into your career, you're one of the go-tos anytime there's a problem in the department. By the time you've worked there for seven years, you're a leader. Ten years, you're nearly the department head and considered one of the OGs of the team. What about this other stuff? I have several friends that are experts in one form or another of natural healing. This gal, gosh, she knows more about what oil does what than I can ever imagine. This girl has been into nutrition as long as I can remember. And whatever ailment you've got, she can tell you which herb or vitamin you're lacking. Go out, get it, start taking it, and boom, your ailment's going away. She's amazing. This other gal I know, she's an expert at preparing healthy, delicious meals. She started her own business, providing home-cooked, packaged, low-calorie meals to help people lose weight. She loves to be in the kitchen. She knows how to give things flavor without added calories, and her meals are amazing. She's an expert. I have other friends who've gone the fitness route. This friend is a bodybuilder who's an expert at leaning out right before competitions. Other friends who are yoga, cycling, or bar instructors, they know everything about what they do. They've been in the field teaching women about fitness, how to move properly to do the workout, and how intensely to work out to either lose or maintain their weight. They are fitness experts. So why is it we can all become experts in one thing or another after just practicing and learning about it for a few years, yet we use money in some form or fashion every single day and continue to fail? The average person never becomes a financial expert. Even though we're exposed to money as children, we grow up hearing about it and watching adults use it, we get our own as teenagers and then become fully in charge of our own finances as young adults. Using logic and experience length of all these other things, each of us should be a personal finance expert by the time we're in our early 20s. If we never worked until we graduated college, we'd still achieve expert status with our finances five years after receiving our degree. So we'd all be money experts by the age of 27. But we're not. As we near closer to 30s and 40s, begin to raise a family, and make moves to increase our income, the opposite happens. We find ourselves drowning in more debt. The scary part is... You think that higher income means less debt and at some point that you could out-earn the need for debt or reach a point where your income supersedes your bills and you could pay things off. But it doesn't happen that way. Typically, the higher the income, the higher the debt. Shocking, right? So why is this such a struggle? There's no one-and-done answer. One reason no one's good at finances because each of us has different personalities and impulses. We come from different backgrounds. We face different challenges and have different lives. The other reason is that money is this fluid, peripheral thing that's in our lives, but we barely spend 10 seconds thinking about each transaction, some not at all, as opposed to the career, the nutrition, the oils, or the fitness. We may use it every day, but we don't spend eight hours a day thinking and learning about our money. It's like gas in a car. We'll spend more time obsessing if the car is clean, when the last oil change was, or if the motor sounds like it's running smoothly, yet gas is the thing being burned every mile we travel. Gas is what's keeping the car moving forward, yet it's an afterthought. The other big reason is that there's lots of bad advice out there. Whether it stems from a great marketing ploy by big banks to convince you that using credit to make purchases is smart, or from economists that know when mass public spends money, that causes a chain reaction that boosts growth for companies and pays employees more, or from Uncle Jim or dad, or whoever well-meaning person who's passing on something that may have worked for them. 
not realizing that it only worked for them because none of the 100 possibly negatively impactful things happened to him over a small window of time. So they think it's sage advice. So far, you're probably thinking, okay, wow, what is with the negative tone here? I'm generally a positive person, but sometimes that positivity goes in one ear and out the other. Intentionally, I'm highlighting things that have possibly negatively impacted your life or that could if you don't catch them because that's what's going to get your attention and wake you up. I do believe very strongly that every one of you mamas has the power, the brains, and the perseverance to create the life you've always wanted. That's where it's also my belief that I have to be bold sometimes and tell you straight up what's holding you back. So let's tackle some of the bad advice out there. What's wrong with it and what to do instead. This way, Not only can you be aware of it and know with confidence what to do instead, but you can also completely disregard that bad advice when you hear it again and quit second-guessing yourself or feeling worried that you're missing something. On top of that, if you find that you've believed one of these bad advice bullet points to be true, you have the opportunity to examine where that belief came from, how long you've been doing it, and if it's really working for you. Maybe you've never even stopped to examine if it's working for you, but now you have the opportunity to create a new belief, alter your actions, and create a new trend in your life. The first piece of bad advice I'd heard since I was a teenager, actually believed and did, I'm not even sure if it came from my parents or other people or advertisements or what, was to get a credit card as soon as you can and begin to establish credit. The advice was basically that you need a credit score, a good one, to function in life. So to start building it right away. Well, tell an 18-year-old to get a credit card and they'll have three tomorrow. As soon as I was settled in college, my first apartment with three roommates, mind you, I had my job and my shiny new class schedule. I applied for my first credit card. I was told to use it and pay it off each month and that that would build my credit. You know what happened though? I built myself a hole, a small hole, since my credit limit was only $200, but still a hole. I remember my first days of toying with the credit limit estimating what I could probably still buy for groceries at Walmart. A 10-pound bag of potatoes, some ramen, some butter, and still stay under my credit limit since there was already $180 on the card from prior weeks. And thinking, okay, I get paid from my retail job on Friday, so I'll pay it off with that. And so the game began. Many 30 and 40 year old adults are still playing that same game that I began right there in my first apartment as an 18 year old. It's like the worst game ever though, because you never get better at it. You never win. The game just gets bigger. You get older, you have a longer established credit history. So they increase your credit limit or you get another card with a larger limit. You get going in your career so your income is greater and your purchasing power is larger. You put more on credit knowing that you'll receive thousands in your paycheck next week. So it's fine. So the whole get a credit card early because you need to build your credit advice spiel is bad, right? Not necessarily. You do need a credit score at some point probably mostly when you're preparing to buy your first home. But what if instead the advice was to pay cash, to use little to no credit, and to always carry more in savings than what your rent costs each month? What if the advice was to have cash in the bank before you considered a purchase? What if the advice was that, hey, use a credit card to make the purchase, only after moving the cash to make that payment in full 
over and specifically allocate a certain amount to pay off your purchase in full when the bill comes. How different my life would have been. How different would your life have been if someone was there to give you real, correct advice when you applied for your first credit card? Are you someone who's, like I mentioned, 30 or 40 years old and still playing this backward game of catch-up with your credit card purchases versus the paycheck? Lots of people are. And lots of people don't even know it's a dangerous cycle to be stuck in. They just have always operated that way and that's how everyone they know operates and that's how their parents before them operated and that's it. It's never occurred to them that there's another way. So what do you do if you're someone who's stuck in this cycle? I was there. You're listening to this thinking, holy cow, that's me. I didn't even know I was doing anything wrong. I thought that since I could pay off my card each month, even though my checking is back to zero after I make that payment, that I was doing fine. So the answer isn't pretty or easy. You have to break the cycle. And that means for a month or two, you have to quit using the card completely and use your cash to make purchases and make the payment. So let's do an example. If you consistently charge $2,000 on your card and then pay it off with $2,000 in cash from your paycheck, you have to pattern interrupt. Imagine the scratching record sound here. There you go. For a month or two, it, it may not be possible in just one month. So say two months. You'll need to take that $2,000 paycheck pay only $1,000 to the card and live off the other $1,000 for a month. You're used to spending $2,000, so this is going to be tough. And yes, that means if you had a $2,000 balance and only paid $1,000, that you'll get some interest charges. That $30 to $60 of interest is the fee you pay to break your bad pattern. And it's well worth it to get out now instead of being stuck for another who knows how many years. The following month, you do the same thing. You get your $2,000 paycheck, you pay off the $1,000 plus interest remaining on the card, and live off of $1,000. During the third month, you have no credit card payment, and you get to live off your full $2,000 paycheck and do what you want. Ta-da! Okay, disclaimer here. I made this sound super easy by using simple numbers. The reality is your card might be so out of control that it's impossible just to tackle in two months. It doesn't matter though. If you want to break the cycle, the premise is the same. You have to stop using your card completely, reserve cash to make a decent payment, maybe half of what you'd typically charge up in the month. You can look at the transactions since last statement total on your bill and live off of cash. This is going to force you to cut your expenditures for a few months because to make the payment and live on cash is going to be an abrupt decrease to your lifestyle. Break it up into three-month increments, your balance in thirds, or four months if you need to. Those few months of cutbacks plus the little bit of interest you'll be charged is 100% worth it to break the cycle. I did it. You can do it. I promise. Along those same lines, it was impressed upon me that your credit score is one of the most important numbers in your life. You need it for everything. To buy a car, to buy a home when you apply for insurance, they'll run your credit, everything. While this is partially true, your credit does get run when you apply for things. It's not true in the part that you need it for everything. You don't need credit to buy a car. You don't need credit to function throughout life. In today's society, I feel like we would all eventually end up with credit of some sort, even if no emphasis was put on establishing credit. And while lots of people play the game of how can I increase my credit score, actually just behaving in a responsible manner with your credit and cash, will naturally raise your credit score. 
the big lie floating around out there is that you need to work on your credit score. What we need to work on is behaving responsibly with our credit and our cash. And then guess what? Creditors will increase your credit lines. As time passes, you will have a longer credit history. If you maintain low usage of your credit, your debt-to-credit ratio remains low. And guess what? Your credit score increases. Typically, people who are either just starting out or who are recovering from money mistakes are the ones seeking credit repair or looking to increase their credit score for some reason. I get it. I have shared openly that we were near bankruptcy at some point. And trust me, our credit scores were in the dumps. Why? Because every credit card loan or whatever we had was practically maxed out. So my debt to credit ratio was really high. And in the credit history, you could see that I was making only the minimum payments on everything. While my credit history was 12 years old already since I did establish credit when I was 18, it was apparent from just looking at our credit that we had nowhere else to go. We were using things to the max and the algorithm sensed that. It calculated that, hey, if these people have maxed out everything and aren't paying off anything... Where are they going from here? There are only two options, default or get your stuff together and make progress. So what I'm saying is that if any of us begin to practice positive, controlled, reasonable financial behavior, living within our means, not overusing our credit, not financing everything possible, not maxing out our purchase power, our credit score will naturally adjust in a positive direction. When someone focuses on positive financial behavior across the board, what do you think they'll do? Begin paying off credit. Begin using credit less often. In just a few months from the time I started really getting my act together, from the moment I decided our situation was awful and I didn't want to live like that, I began focusing on a debt payoff strategy and using cash for all our purchases. And suddenly, I started getting emails from all the different cards that also monitor your credit, telling me that our score had changed. I ignored them at first because I was like, I get it. It's awful. It can't get worse. I'm working on it. Leave me alone. The next month, I got more notifications. So, I finally checked on things. Our score was going up. Granted, it had a long way to go. We were somewhere in the 500s, which was pretty bad. So we had work to do. But just by altering my perspective, which altered my behavior, and by beginning to focus on things, we were making progress. As I focused on getting our financial act together, our score reflected my effort. There was no payment game I had to play, no credit score guru I hired. That's the thing. The system is set up to accurately score good or bad behavior. And for most of us, our score is accurate. Instead of being told to maintain a good credit score, what if I was told in my 20s that I should just focus on increasing my net worth? I would have had some very valuable information just in that one statement because I would have immediately been like, wait, what's net worth? And when I looked that up, I would have been led down the glorious rabbit hole of asset accumulation and investment possibilities. If I'd understood the magnitude of what asset building could do, And what an advantage I would have had in my 20s if my eyes had been open to compounding interest? The simplicity of a simple shift, focusing on net worth instead of the value of your credit score, could have had a massive impact. What about you? Have you been focused on your credit score this whole time? And maybe you're like, okay, what is this net worth thing? Just the simple awareness of what net worth even is can do so much to shift focus and allow someone to begin concentrating on the correct goal. And now that I've mentioned this, if you are one of those people, you're better off at this moment because your eyes are now open to something new. 
Hey, Mama. At this point, I think we're on the same page. We both want our kids to grow up way more financially savvy than we did. Let's be real. Teaching kids about money using cash is necessary, but to prevent them from suffering the same money issues we have, they need practice using apps and plastic, which is where FamZoo comes in. For a few months now, my family's been using FamZoo, an app connected with prepaid cards, one for each family member, where we have all the parental control to pay allowance, gift cash, split earnings between spending and savings, monitor balances and transactions, track savings goals, teach budgeting, and so much more. The kids think it's so cool to look at their own balances through the app and use their own card when making purchases. The card's funds are FDIC insured and the cardholders are protected by MasterCard's zero liability policy against unauthorized purchases. Check out all the ways FamZoo can help boost financial literacy for your little ones by clicking the affiliate link at reachingabundance.com. The next piece of financial advice I can't stand is along the lines of buying a home is better than renting and that you should buy a home as fast as you can so that you can establish equity. Equity is just like your credit score, though. You only need it if you plan on using it. It's just another form of credit, except equity is a line of credit that's secured by your house, the place you live. You don't need equity unless you plan on leveraging it to do something. The idea that a young person should hurry up and buy a home as soon as they qualify has a few issues. One hole in the theory is that if someone were to rush and buy a home at 25 or so years old, they're likely overcommitting themselves in a multitude of ways. First of all, as a young 20-something, you have no idea where life is going to take you. You may not even want to live there in a few years. You may meet someone and together you may want to live elsewhere. You may have a job transfer. Who knows what could happen? At that age, the whole world is new to you. So you can easily qualify for way more expensive of a home than what you really should buy. But it's likely there's no one there to tell you that. You'll probably accidentally commit to too big of a house with too big of a payment that needs too many repairs and that will cause you more stress than if you just rented a little place you were comfortable with. Overcommitment of cash in the home is one thing. In many places, you can find rent for half of what you would pay each month in a mortgage payment. In my area, things are neck and neck, so it might make sense to buy. There again, there are so many factors to consider. I do not think we should be told to rush to buy a home. I think your 20s are for focusing on getting your career on the right track, starting off at your first job with benefits, and flexing that self-discipline muscle to force yourself to save 10% and max out your savings benefits. The whole real estate and banking industry, and economists for that matter, want people to buy homes because that's how they make money. They aren't bad people, don't get me wrong. They serve a fantastic purpose and are great resources when you're really ready. But how different would your life look if, instead of someone harping on you that homeownership is the golden ticket, they told you that maxing out your 401k contributions and living off of only 70% of your income was key? Imagine having conversations about savings and retirement accounts at 20-something instead of feeling the pressure to become a homeowner. I'll tell you, my point of view would have been drastically different. The first several jobs where I was employed didn't have benefits at all, and I didn't know any better. Almost my entire 20s were wasted making too low of a salary and investing pretty much nothing just because I didn't know. No one knew. No one around me, anyway. I was the first in my family to get a college degree, so there were lots of things in my life starting at the age of 17 where I was just on my own. Mom and Dad had no idea how to help me because they didn't go to college, 
So they didn't know anything about applications and ACTs or scholarships or any of that. Then, these prior generations are still stuck on achieving that American dream. The office job, the house, the car. I grew up thinking that those things meant success too. When that's what you come from and that's all you've been told your whole life, how could you possibly do anything differently? You think you're following the right path, which is why I'm sharing this with you now. If you've been hell-bent on homeownership or you know a young person who is, it's important for them to know what's really important. Once someone is comfortable maxing out their retirement accounts, living off of 70% of their income, and then still wants to and can afford to buy a home, I'd say go for it. But if not, I'd say let's take a step back and examine why they think they need to buy a home. It's all about the thought process. Taking the things you think you're supposed to do and stopping and examining why you think that and if it's really the best choice. So the next piece of advice that drives me crazy is this idea that if you can afford the payment, you can get the thing. If you can afford $20 a month, you can upgrade to the next iPhone. On car leases, if you can afford $350 a month, you can afford to ride around in luxury. You get the point. Somehow, our personal finances and our brains alike have been manipulated into this narrow month-to-month focus. Creditors, big box stores offering financing, and car dealerships have been working on us for years, slowly persuading us to believe that if we just have an extra $100 per month, their shiny new thing is affordable. I disagree with this because when you sign up for that financing, that seemingly affordable payment, you're committing yourself to years of payments. And we're okay with the fact that those payments add up to more than the sticker price on the item we're buying for some strange reason. It's been this crazy shift where the thrill that we experience as consumers when we get to take home that shiny new thing is worth the years and years of bills and interest we'll have to pay. When, what if you stopped and asked yourself, Do I have $2,000 where I could just buy this new phone outright? Or have I ever even felt that I had $20 extra each month that I could put in savings? For most people, the answers to both of these questions are no. So if you haven't ever even been able to save $20 a month in your savings account, what makes you think You can add a $20 a month commitment to your life all willy-nilly. Or worse, if you haven't easily been putting hundreds in savings each month, why on earth do you think signing up for a commitment of hundreds of dollars because you want a car is a good idea? Unfortunately, these marketers are so good at convincing us all that we need these items And they're actually luxury goods. They're not needs. iPhones, leather seats, these are wants. The thing is, we've been seeing commercials on TV and convinced about things we do and don't need since we were kids watching Mickey Mouse Club. Those messages are so normal to us, we don't even realize we're being marketed to. We actually think we need these things. So instead, if you know of a purchase you will need or that you want, look around and see what the payments are. Then make yourself save that much each month to really see if you can do it. Once you realize your savings is building and that you can handle that type of a commitment, go ahead and calculate how many months it would take you just to save up and buy the item in full. How much can you save by buying the thing outright? How good would that feel by testing that savings muscle on something small like $20 a month and maybe a smallish large purchase? Maybe something that costs like a couple hundred dollars. 
once you proved yourself that you can do that, which I know you can, but sometimes you have to prove it to yourself, then make the goal a little bigger. Maybe save $50 a month towards a $1,000 purchase. You can play with the percentages and amounts, just slowly moving your goal up. As a side note, I'm telling you to save for purchases. This is assuming you're already saving toward retirement, emergency funds, and all of that. The big thing here, though, is don't commit to an additional payment when you've never even been able to save that amount of money in a savings account. Along those lines, talking about savings, at this point, I hope you've heard about an emergency fund. That is a savings account where you've set aside money just in case of an emergency. You have a tire blowout. Your dog needs an emergency vet visit. Your kids get a cold and send you to the ER with a crazy fever in the middle of the night. It's a cash amount that you've set aside as the first line of defense against a pop-up expense. That kind of (laughs) rhymes. It's been made popular by Dave Ramsey. And before you get serious about paying off debt, that the first step should be to save $1,000 in a savings account. The problem is two-thirds of Americans don't have savings at all. First of all, if you haven't heard that you need at least $1,000 in savings or don't have savings, you do need that. This is one of the main things that will begin to pull you over to the confidence and stability side of things instead of remaining on the credit dependency and fearful dreading your finances side. Secondly, I've heard it misconstrued that you only need $1,000 in savings. Other advisors suggest other amounts. I've been there, done it all, made a mess, cleaned it up, slid backwards, and figured it out again. However, if you study that advice and save up the $1,000, you'll learn that this 1000 is a starter emergency fund. The trouble is people don't listen. They hear what they want to hear and pick up on the single word or two that they need in the moment and keep trucking. Have you ever told your kids exactly where something is in the living room only to be asked a few minutes later, but where? As your kid just stands in the middle of the living room looking vaguely around, you wind up repeating yourself, honey, I said it was on the lower shelf on the left side of the TV in the living room. All they heard was living room. It's so frustrating, but we do this too. We can read a whole book, listen to an hour-long segment of a radio show, and yet our brain naturally extracts the single most important detail for us to move forward with. So that's what's happening here. It's not you just need $1,000 in savings and you just move on with your life. You need to start by saving $1,000 and then continue to make progress. I actually suggest maintaining $1,000 per family member in a savings account. So if you have a family of four like me, keep $4,000 in savings at a time, just in case. This gives you mega confidence. You'll feel so proud of how much you've saved, considering this is likely the greatest amount you've ever had in savings. Plus, this savings totally protects the family from any kind of catastrophe, Have a house fire and need to pay the $2,000 deductible for your homeowner's insurance? That happened to us. Done. Kid broke an arm? Cash takes care of the medical bills stress-free. Suddenly, life doesn't feel so overwhelming when you have cash to pay for things. And you don't have to figure out which credit card has a big enough limit for you to take care of business. Speaking of credit cards... The next point I'll make is that credit cards are not evil, and I'm not one of those advocates for using only a debit card. It's not how I live, and I completely see the benefits of using credit cards for points, consumer fraud protection, and all of the other stuff that comes along with it. So, I'm not a cut-up-all-your-credit-cards type of coach. What I will say is that when you use cash, you spend less. Notice I said cash, not debit. Like physical paper cash. 
So if you're one of those who's constantly over budget where finances just seem too chaotic and out of hand, cash is going to be my recommendation. I won't tell you to cut up your credit cards. I like to think that I'm a pretty level-headed person, and with my clients, I take a look at everything. We consider all the variables together. If there are credit cards that are unused, that won't be used, like a store credit card that was open when they bought couches and haven't used them again since, or a medical credit card that was for a specific surgery and it's been a while with no new surgeries planned, then I suggest those accounts be closed. But your points earning regular city or chase or whatever, that's fine. You can keep it. The thing is, I think it should be put away and locked up somewhere until you can get your financial behavior under control with cash. Most people swipe their card multiple times a day without even looking at the total. So every time they look at the balance or receive a statement, even though they were present for each of those purchases, it's like a total shock. The only way to put an immediate halt on this shock factor pump the brakes on the ever-increasing balances, and get an initial budget in place is to use a system with controls. The most rudimentary system for finances is cold, hard cash. It's old school. It's a pain in the butt. But think about what you would do if a project at work wasn't making progress. If things aren't going as planned, you have to scrap the things that aren't working and get back to the basics. This is what you have to do with your finances. It's obviously not working to allow yourself to have autonomy over this credit card since you can't exhibit self-control. So you have to scrap that plan and get back to basics. What's the most basic form of currency? Cash. Once spending is under control and a working budget is in place where you're spending within parameters for several months, You've proven that you can, in fact, succeed at spending within your means. Then, and only then, do I think credit card use is reasonable. You can cautiously begin to bring using the credit card back into the picture. Of course, there'd be rules associated like making sure you already have the cash you need to make that purchase and making sure the purchase is within the budget. But you could begin using your card for groceries, for example, little by little. I am someone who does not like to use or even carry around my own debit card. So if someone wants to use debit and they see that as a viable solution to the issue, that's fine. I, however, am not someone who advocates for a debit-only lifestyle. I appreciate the fact that if somehow my credit card number gets stolen that charges appear that are fraudulent, my checking account isn't affected at all. I simply call the credit card company, they take care of things, it's a completely separate bucket. What if this week I had three grand in my checking account and two grand is for my house payment that's due on Friday? And then on Wednesday, something happens with my debit card number. Suddenly, my house payment is in jeopardy. Not cool, man. Not cool. However, if I'm using my credit card for purchases and I log in and I notice some strange charges, I call them up, they credit my account back and take care of the claim. Meanwhile, my house payment and other bills are running out of my checking account completely unaffected. Plus, like many of my friends, I do appreciate cash back, points, and all that good stuff. There were years and years where we could fully fund Christmas off of the gift card earnings we made from one of our reward accounts. There have also been plenty of months where I toss my cash back earnings into my retirement account as a little bonus for myself. I like earning extra, and as long as you're not spending to get the cash back, that you're still spending within the budget, I'd totally take the little 2% back as a mini bonus. So to sum up things, I guess I'm pretty black or white. There's no gray area for me. Debit card usage falls into the gray area. It looks like a credit card, but it's a direct line to your cash, and that's risky business in my book. I say either use your credit wisely and reap all the rewards, 
Or if you can't remain within budget and you're struggling with overspending, use paper cash. With any medium, there are going to be challenges. But that's where I'm at. I'm not a cut up your credit cards advocate, but I am a cash advocate. Okay, so the last financial idea that I disagree with is the idea that having car payments are inevitable. I've heard different phrases like, everybody's got a car payment, or you're always going to have a car payment. Variations of the belief that you're always going to be paying something for a vehicle, so you may as well get an upgrade. The idea like, well, I already pay $500 a month, so what's $550 when I get Bluetooth, leather, shiny rims, and a backup camera? Then you get used to that $550, and in three years you find yourself back at the dealership upgrading for the next new ride for another $50 to $100 a month. It never stops when you go on like this. The thing I'd like you to realize is that not everyone has a car payment. And you'd be best suited not to have one as well. Plenty of people out there have made the decision to quit upgrading their vehicle every couple of years. Quit digging that hole and just to pay off their car. I know, it's crazy, right? Again, marketers and car manufacturers have given us this false sense of security that if you have a newish car, fewer things are going to go wrong And that you can just take it up to the dealership if there's anything wrong and they'll take care of it. I've got news for you. Those repairs at the dealership aren't always just taken care of. You can walk out of there with a hefty bill, even if your car is quote-unquote under warranty. Their warranty doesn't actually cover that much. Also, having the repairs done at a dealership is often the most expensive way to go. And if you're still not convinced, look at the math. Assume you have a $500 car payment. You're paying $6,000 per year for what you think is the right to be able to take your vehicle to the dealership if something goes wrong. Usually, you find out whatever's wrong isn't even covered. Plus, after the free oil changes and all that are over, you still owe over half the car's value. That $500 a month budget cramping payment is barely making progress on that $30,000 balance. I've got news for you. We have two paid off vehicles. We have no car payments. We pay for an oil change and some other maintenance under $100 each about every six months. And then on the older vehicle, we might have a $1,000 repair once a year, maybe every two years. So $1,200 for the year in maintenance for two vehicles as opposed to $6,000 per year for one? I saw what a difference not having a car payment would make in our monthly budget right away when I first started learning all this personal finance stuff. But the money talks here. I'd rather keep that $4,800 difference in our pocket or in our savings year after year, hands down. Imagine how that adds up. That's the thing, too. In just four years of saving that $4,800, if you stashed that in a savings account, you could buy a practically new $20,000 vehicle in cash and play that game over again. That's what we're planning on. We bought one car for cash years ago, and then we bought a newer car with a payment. That was one of the financial mistakes we made that I'm pretty open about. So when everything hit the fan, I made it a point to pay off that car and decided we will never, ever have a car payment again. So I challenge you, what would it be like if you didn't have a car payment? How much is left on your balance? What difference would that make in financial pressure each month? Realize that you don't need the shiniest, newest vehicle and that no one actually cares what you drive. They're too busy being obsessed with themselves and what they drive. Not everyone has a car payment and you don't have to either. All right, there you have it. Seven commonly used financial ideals that I completely disagree with 
what I think you should know about them, plus a little advice on how you could go against the grain and make your personal financial life better as a result. I encourage you to notice assumptions you have about the way things are and begin to examine why you think that way and if that thought is actually true. I hope you notice that some of the things I brought up are common truths in today's society, yet I present a different point of view. That's the problem, I think. We just take things for what they are, for what's normal or assumed, and we don't think for ourselves sometimes. By bringing this to your attention, I'd love for you to just expand upon this and try to come up with another thing or two that you just assumed was the truth that you would like to explore. Thank you again for being here with me today, girl. I truly believe we can have it all through intention, consistency, and always trying to be present in the moment. This week, edge a little closer to reaching abundance by noticing what financial assumptions you're operating from and stopping to think where they came from and most importantly, if they're working for you. Through this little action, you're training yourself to think when it comes to your money and not just to do things because that's what everyone else does. I'd love for us all to notice the lies we tell ourselves. Not all your friends have new cars. Not everyone goes shopping every weekend. Not everyone has a lush vacation every year. Notice what stories we tell ourselves and create a new story. Before you go, I want to invite you to help me reach and help change mama's lives. And in exchange, I'm offering a little incentive. If I receive 50 reviews in iTunes by November 22nd, 2019, I'll be doing a drawing for a $50 Amazon gift card. All you have to do to have your name entered into that drawing is to click the rate and review link in your iTunes app and provide a review for this podcast. Getting ratings and reviews helps me climb the charts in iTunes. The higher this show is ranked, the more likely mamas will find it, and the more beautiful lives can be positively impacted. So, help me reach my goal of 50 reviews in 50 days, and you might just win 50 bucks. Don't forget to check out the show notes at reachingabundance.com where you'll find the summary of everything we talked about here. I look forward to talking with you again next time.